Susan, butcher box to the rescue. The other night we had some friends over for dinner and we had no idea what to make. And I was like, guess what? We have a freezer full of meat. So my husband went down and thought out some chicken from butcher box and made the best cocoa van that we've had in a long, long time. Yeah, you'd have been screwed without butcher box because I know you ain't got no time to go to the store right now. That's true. I don't have time to go shop for meat or pick out the meat or find the best quality, low-priced meat. So ButcherBox does all of that for me. So true story, my husband's workplace has a Slack channel called Smoked Meats. And I know you can't like win a workplace conversation, but he is now because with ButcherBox, his great cuts of meat to the door, they can cook up and take photos of for his workmates. <laughs> I love ButcherBox and I think other people would too. ButcherBox is the ultimate convenience, delivered right to your doorstep, free shipping always, with curated, customized box plans. It's 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork, raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. There are a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive membership deals. They also provide recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks. Sign up at butcherbox.com proof and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer, plus an additional 20% off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com proof and use code proof to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. If you're listening to this show, then I'm going to guess you're a fan of True Crime Podcasts. So in the mornings, grab your favorite mug and pour yourself a dose of spine-tingling true crime every a.m. with Morning Cup of Murder. It's a short daily show that's the perfect podcast to incorporate into your morning routine. In less than 15 minutes, you'll hear about a true crime that took place on today's date in history. Each day's dark history lesson will kickstart your morning with intriguing tales of murder, abduction, serial killers, cults, and more. So pour yourself a piping hot cup of murder every single morning with Morning Cup of Murder. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In May of 1997, a police officer came by Glenn Clark's house with a warrant for his son's arrest. Lee was being charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder. When Lee called home later that day, Glenn told him what had happened, and they decided to go to the police station to figure out what was going on. I said, I'm going to take you in, and uh, I said, there ain't going to be nothing to this. I said, I don't know what they're doing, but, you know. And you felt like you were doing the right thing. Hey, man, let me tell you something, and I tell everybody right here, right now. If my boy killed that boy, he need to be where he is. You do it, you got to pay the time. But he didn't do it. That car ride would lead to the, to the jail. What was that like? Was he saying, no, don't take me, let's... Uh, no, no, he wasn't. He, he wasn't like that. You know, he was kind of like me. You know, he wanted to kind of go and find out what's this all about because he didn't know. He wasn't upset or anything like that. Glenn was confused by the warrant for Lee's arrest, but not alarmed. I kind of figured that what they would do was take him in and talk to him. And then eventually he'd come out and then and maybe say, hey, they're saying this and they're saying that. That didn't happen. Glenn dropped his son off at the police station and waited for him to come back out again. But Lee didn't come back out again. And 25 years later, Glenn's still waiting for him to come home. When I went in there and they took him in, I mean, after that, hey, I never saw him outside these walls again. My name is Susan Simpson. I'm an attorney and podcaster, and previously I hosted the Undisclosed Podcast. Hi, I'm Jacinda Davis, and I'm a true crime TV producer. Last year, Susan and I decided to team up and reinvestigate the murder of Brian Bowling. Along with Kevin Fitzpatrick, president of Red Marble Media, we decided to launch Proof. You can listen to Proof like you would any podcast. And you can follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com. Thanks for listening and welcome to Proof. Let's talk about the trial for a moment. 
So did Lee have a public defender? I hired Rex. You hired Rex? Yeah. I don't know if y'all familiar with Bobby Lee Cook. I went to him, talked with him, but I didn't have deep enough pockets for Bobby Lee Cook. He wanted about 40 grand or better back then, and I couldn't afford it. Bobby Lee Cook was probably the most famous defense attorney in Georgia, but he came with a price tag that Glenn couldn't afford. Instead, he hired another attorney that worked at Bobby Lee Cook's firm, Rex Abernathy. Rex worked for Bobby Lee Cook, so I figured, and uh, I forget exactly what I paid Rex, I don't know, it was three or five grand, whatever it was. And that's the reason I chose, chose Rex, because I, I could afford him. But uh, I'll be honest with you, during the trial, I thought Rex was doing, doing pretty good. And it would seem like when he did get on kind of a roll or something, judge would just shut him down, just shut him down. During his trial, Lee had been impressed with Rex Abernathy too. He thought things were going pretty well, despite the consistently unfavorable rulings from the judge. Though, Lee hadn't understood a lot of things that had happened in that courtroom. Rex didn't really tell me much uh, in the way of the trial and stuff. All he kept telling me was, oh yeah, we're gonna beat this case right here, we're gonna beat this case. That's the only thing he kept repeating to me, is he's gonna beat the case. Did he say why? Yeah, he, I mean, he, he, he told me straight up. He said, I can see right here, you're innocent. He said, I know you didn't do this. We're going to beat this. That's what he told me. But it didn't work out like that. At the time, Lee had thought his attorney was doing a good job. But he's no longer so confident of that. I don't think Abernathy did everything he could have did, neither. Your dad liked him. or Your dad thought that he did a good job and tried hard. Well, my dad, God bless my daddy's heart, Susan, but my daddy... He's a lot like me. He's old country boy. Mm -hmm. He ain't had to see what they're all about, what they're really like. And I've had a lot of time to think about it, more time than my daddy has, because that's all I got is time on my hands. And I'll sit back and I've looked at it. And on the surface, just looking at it, you think, oh, yeah, Rex did a jam-up job. But when you really get thinking about it, I mean, did he really do a jam-up job? At trial, Rex Abernathy called just three witnesses to testify in Lee's defense. One of them was Dr. Harvey Howell, the medical examiner who testified that Brian had been killed by a contact shot. The remaining two witnesses were both called in to testify about where Lee had been on the night of the shooting. I had a party at my apartment that night with 10 people there that know that I was there all night. That's what really screws me up right there. How in the hell can you put me as being over there at Brian's house when I've got all these people that know I wasn't over there? Did they testify? Two of them did. Doug Bray and his mama, Cherie Charette, both testified. Why didn't the others testify? Rex Tabernathy said he didn't feel it was necessary. Lee had plenty of alibi witnesses to choose from, but some of them, like his mother, his brother, and his girlfriend, wouldn't have done him much good at trial. They would have been too easy to impeach. The prosecution could just argue that they were lying to help him out. So in the end, Rex Abernathy chose to call just two of Lee's alibi witnesses, Doug Bray, who had been at the party with his twin brother Don, and Doug and Don's mother, Cherie, who had dropped them both off at Lee's place that night. Did they testify that he was at the party? Yeah, but... So there was testimony heard in court that he was elsewhere? Yeah, there was. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to call everyone at the party. That'd be, that's not a good strategy. No. I mean, choosing the mom is the best choice because it's better than the teenage boys that were at the party. So the mom who dropped kids off and saw him there is a, probably the choice I'd have made, too. I mean, it's hard, too, though, because they're dumb teenage boys. I mean, against a, a detective, they're not going to seem credible. And the jury's going to dismiss them. Doug Bray testified that he'd seen Lee at his apartment that night. But on cross, the prosecutor also got him to admit that he had smoked about three or four or five joints that night, which likely did nothing to bolster his credibility with the jury. It probably didn't help either when the prosecutor suggested, without evidence, that Doug Bray was another member of the Freedbird gang. But Doug's mom, Cherie, likely made for a more credible witness. 
She testified that when she dropped Doug and Dawn off at Lee's place that night, she'd seen Lee standing there out on the porch. He was there that day. I do remember that. If I can't remember nothing else, I remember he was there. I know he was there when we, I when we got there to meet Jamie. Lee came out the front door, and so. And best you recall, Lee was acting normal that night. Yes, yeah, normal so. That's Cherie and her son Don. It was Don's brother Doug who had testified at trial, but Don had been there too. Don told us that he certain Lee was at the party, and he certain it was the night Brian was shot because the next morning, they had gotten the awful news. We didn't hear about that till the next day. What'd you think when you found out? I mean, it, it was shock. Brian was a close friend of all of ours. We all hung together all the time. We were just at Brian's house, not like a day or so before, all of us hanging out, like usual. That was the entirety of the case in chief put on by Lee Clark's attorney. But even though Lee and Kane were tried at the same time, Kane had his own attorney. And when it was time to present his defense, he called three witnesses of his own. For obvious reasons, Kane did not call any alibi witnesses. There's no dispute that he was there when the shooting happened. Instead, Kane's defense focused on refuting the testimony of Angela Bruce. Angela was the prosecution witness who testified that four months after the shooting, Kane's uncle had brought Kane and Lee to a party at her trailer, and while there, the two boys had confessed to killing Brian. At trial, Kane's attorney called Kane's uncle, Phil Story, to testify that this never happened. So Larry, Larry Barkley, Kane's attorney, called you. And at trial, he asked you about the party, and you said that you went over very quick. It's like, geez, it's only two pages of direct. And it says you get there around midnight. You saw Angela Bruce. You say, Smitty uh, and my nephew Kane, you were there an hour or so, hour and a half at the party, and that you never heard Kane or Josh say anything about the killing Brian Bowling. No. And you did not see Lee Clark there. Mm-mm. To me, calling Phil's story seems like an obvious mistake for the defense. If anything, Phil just corroborates the prosecution's case. He confirms that there really had been a party at Angela Bruce's trailer, and that Kane really had been there. But Phil's story was not the only attendee at this party. In fact, according to Angela, there were 15 to 20 people there in all. And Angela Bruce actually named four people who were sitting right there at the kitchen table when Lee and Kane supposedly confessed to murder. Why didn't your well, attorneys try and talk to the other partygoers? I never understood. I never understood that either. I'm always wondering that myself. Now, I never understood why they didn't try to get somebody else in the party, you know, to come testify. Someone but, aside from Phil's story, your uncle, who the jury's going to yeah. assume would lie for you. Yeah. Um, I never understood that either. I mean, Barton did a piss poor job. The second witness Kane's attorney called was Caprice. She'd actually been called to testify as part of the prosecution's case, but Barkley brought her back to the witness stand again to refute Angela Bruce's claim that on the night of the party, she'd driven up to the trailer to pick up Lee and Kane. When I was in court, they was asking me about, you know, I went, supposedly went to somewhere with somebody and picked up Josh and Something, I don't know. Do you know the name Angela Bruce? Do you know the McHenry Trailer Park? Maybe that's the lady. Maybe that's the lady that I'm talking about. She got the long, wavy look in there. Angela Bruce was from McHenry Trailer Park, so if that's... I don't know if that's where they tried to say I went. I never saw that lady until that day. Caprice told us that until that day, she had never seen Lee Clark before either. And I remember sitting there and them asking me questions and me having to look at Josh and Lee. Lee just glared at me like, you know, like malicious stuff. Like he wanted to hurt me or something, you know, just for what I was saying. And he, just, he just stared at me. Like, I was like, oh, Lee, you know. And Josh would look up at me and then look down and just cry. Like he was the only one upset. And Lee sat there like, it didn't bother him at all. Really, like, nothing. He wasn't bothered by any of it. 
Like he had no remorse for it, no nothing. This is something we heard from some of the jurors we spoke to as well. While Kane's story had been a lanky, crying mess, Lee Clark had been the opposite. He hadn't seemed remorseful at all. Now, a lot of people have mentioned uh, Lee's eyes. They all talk about, well, a lot, of, you're right. They all mention his, like, intense, intense. I don't know what word you Like, just a stare. Beady, someone said beady eyes. But they all talk about how when they're testifying, you know, Kane is crying and... She said he had a smirk. Oh, yeah, he has she a said smirk. He had, no, I haven't heard that. Later, Susan and I talked to Lee about our interview with Caprice. She, she says the same thing that she said. I mean, she's never changed her story. Um, but she did tell us... But she remembers looking at you and that she thought you were... What'd she say? She said you just had, like, a really hard, angry look on your face and was Almost staring at her, like a threatening... Look, people get me confused with that stuff all the time. When you, when you meet me face-to-face, Susan, you're going to see it because I've got that look. That look stays permanently on my face all the time. I don't, I don't do it intentionally. It's just there. Resting bitch face. I was going to say, <laughs> resting bitch face. <laughs> I've got that look. I'm serious. People walk up to me all the time like, man, are you okay? I said, I'm fine, dude. What's up? They said, man, you over here looking crazy, man. I said, well, that's me for you, buddy. And I tell the people all the time, that's probably what got me convicted. Well, apparently I made an impression on Caprice. Because she, I mean, she said that Josh was crying and just looked distraught, whereas you just looked mean and just stared her down. Yeah, I probably had that look on my face. Probably, I mean, I know I keep that look on my face, but I probably had an extra look on my face then because I was pretty pissed off about the whole situation. One thing we do a lot while investigating is sign up for newspapers. Local papers all over the country try and track down some scrap of info from, I don't know, the random 2007 edition of the Memphis paper, just for hypothetical example. <laughs> hypothetical. But the problem is we always forget to cancel those subscriptions. Luckily, there's a solution for people like us who sometimes lose track of things. And that's Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, you get full control over your subscriptions and a clear view of your expenses. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. That's amazing. That's, that's all I want in life is for someone to always deal with customer service for me. It's like having a personal assistant. Rocket Money has over 5 billion users and has saved them over $500 billion and saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash proof. That's rocketmoney.com slash proof. Rocketmoney.com slash proof. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered, but we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. At trial, both Lee's and Kane's attorneys had been focused on trying to discredit the prosecution's theory of what the motive had been. The prosecution argued that Brian Bowling had given evidence against Lee and Kane that implicated them in the theft of a safe from Kane's father. The day before the trial was scheduled to begin, the Rome News Tribune had run an article about the case and quoted investigators. It read... Investigators David Stewart and Sergeant Dallas Battle said they believe Story and Clark conspired to murder Brian because he was the only witness who could testify against the two in a burglary case. This is not what the prosecution was able to show at trial, though. Under oath, the investigators' claims that Brian's role as a witness had been much more modest. One week before Brian's death, Investigator Stewart had been attempting to interview Lee Clark about the safe theft. He had stopped by the bowling residence to search for Lee Clark, 
but Lee hadn't been there. On his way back out to his car, Stewart stopped and briefly spoke to Brian. Did you at any time interview Mr. Brian Bowling? Yes, Kane's story was present when I talked with Brian Bowling about particularities involved with the theft of the safe. Was Kane's story just there on the premises or actually a part of the conversation? I did not talk with Kane and he was not part of our conversation, but he was there where he heard the conversation. How do you know he heard the conversation? Well, I saw him. He was standing next to Brian. Did Brian Bowling cooperate with you, give you information? Yes, he did. And did it lead to the arrest of anyone? It corroborated statements made by defendants involved with the case. There's no record in the police file about what Brian told investigator Stewart. Stewart did not document this conversation. But nothing Brian said to Stewart could have led to any arrests. Because by the time this conversation occurred, all four of the boys involved in the safe theft had already been charged and arrested. But whatever Brian said to the investigator, Kane heard it too. But the thing about it is, I'm standing right beside you. The only thing David Stewart asked him is, did he know where Lee Clark lived? That was it. He asked me and Brian questions about, you know, where, where he stayed at. And, I mean, we told him. But you didn't hear uh, Brian say anything about Lee? No, no, none of that. I'm this whole conversation about it. That's, that's a lie. It never happened. Well, it was during that conversation he was supposed uh, to have been given the info that made the case against y'all for the safe. I know, exactly. And the whole time I was sitting thinking that, no, you didn't even ask him these questions. I was standing there right beside him when you asked him. The prosecution used David Stewart to prove that Brian had spoken to the police, and also that Kane and Lee had known about it because Kane had been standing right there when it happened. But the prosecution also needed to show that this would have been enough to motivate Lee and Kane to kill Brian. And that's where Deborah Kelly came in. You've heard from her before. She testified that while cleaning the story's trailer, she'd come across a notebook that belonged to Kane. It was a list of rules, uh, the do's and the don'ts. And it'd be initiated into the gang and all this stuff. I don't remember all the rules, but what stood out to me the most is if a brother's caught knocking on another brother, the punishment's death. Deborah Kelly testified that this notebook had identified the members of the Freebird gang, including Brian, Kane, and Lee. And she believes that Brian was killed because he'd broken the gang's most important rule. In your testimony, you mentioned a time that um, Brian came over. Does that ring a bell at all? He's the one that uh, told me that he, he knew something about the safe. And I, I told him to contact the police. And you don't know if he did or not? I'm sure he did. He's dead. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure. Even before Brian's death, Debbie Kelly had a low opinion of Lee and Kane and the other teenage boys that Brian had hung out with. She didn't like the way they acted, and she didn't like the language that she'd heard them use around one another. And they said, uh, it was about the time the fair was in Rome. And they said, Hey, homie, y'all going to the fair? And that made me so upset. And I looked at those boys, I said, these two ain't going nowhere but probably to the graveyard or the jail. <laughs> Brian had been different from the other boys, though, Debbie Kelly told us. He'd had a conscience. Even though he was in that gang, Freebirds, I don't think he was happy. I think he wanted out. And so he went and I'm pretty sure he told the police about the safe and everything. In my opinion, that's what got him killed. Debbie Kelly had known a lot about the safe theft. In fact, she'd been something of an unofficial, unappointed assistant to the investigation. David Stewart taught me pretty well. Uh, <laughs> he said I, I ought to went to be in an investigator. <laughs> David Stewart told you that you ought to be an investigator? Yeah, that's what he said. He when did he say that? That was when all this began. <laughs> Debbie Kelly told us that after Brian's death, she continued her investigation and questioned Kane about his role in it. You said, I talked to Josh a lot, asking him questions, and he don't ever have any straight answers. Yeah, yeah. I said, Kane, 
Don't go down for somebody else's doings. You told Deborah you didn't do it. But there was some scuffling in that bedroom. Where did the scuffling come from? That's what I asked. And I said, if Lee done it, that explains why Lee ran. Did you ask him if you didn't do it, who did, or? Yeah, and he would never. He called it narc on a homie. David Stewart had also tried to get Kane to narc on his homies when he'd interviewed Kane about the safe theft. And I'll tell you what he told Kane. And this was David's words. He said, because where you're going is to big man jail. And said, they're going to call you sweet thing when you walk in the door. David was trying to scare him into telling the truth. How did Kane react to that? His words was, I don't give a. David Stewart's interview with Kane was recorded, and Kane's attorney introduced it into evidence at trial, which is why this tape recording still exists. In this interview, though, Kane does not display the defiant attitude that Deborah Kelly remembers. Okay. When you say you all got the safe, who was all involved? Let's name their names. Uh, me. Lee Clark, Pete Jordan, Jennifer. We got the safe, we left, and went and destroyed the safe and got the money out. I can't think of anything else at this time. I'll note that uh, I think Josh uh, is uh, trying to get all this behind him. He's, he's, at least as far as I'm concerned, he has been cooperative with me. And uh, we landed at that. Deborah Kelly had been present at this interview as well. She helped Investigator Stewart question Kane. Also with me, I'll mention for the record, is Deborah Kelly, who is a neighbor witness to this incident. Hey, Mr. Kelly, you go ahead. Um, I think Josh forgot about saying how they split the money up. Oh, yeah, I think that was $800 a piece. After Brian had been shot and killed, Deborah Kelly had switched from investigating the safe theft to investigating Brian's death. That's when she remembered the notebook she'd found in the story's trailer, the one with the disturbing imagery on it. And there was crossbone and skulls. I'll never forget that. On the cover? On the front of it. It was a book of songs, a song of poetry that I had wrote over the years. That's all it was. Kane told Susan there had been a notebook with skull and crossbones on the cover. The notebook was real. The skull and crossbones I, I was right. That was actually going to be the symbol that we, that we were going to have on our bass drum. That was actually going to be the symbol of the band. What I kind mean, of songs did you have it, in it, there? The songs that we, that we were writing for the band and everything. Like one of them was called Blood Moon, uh... One was called Destiny's Doorway. Were they like song. Were they violent lyrics? No, no, hell no. I didn't really even, even get into violent lyrics. I mean, you know how the nineties were. <laughs> so you know, I mean, I mean, it was the whole, you know, the whole Nirvana, you know, Pearl Jam, Smashing Pumpkins era, all that. Deborah Kelly had known that Kane often wrote song lyrics. You mentioned in your trial testimony that when you found the gang notebook. At first, she thought it was like rock and roll songs, or yeah, start with yeah, yeah. So you'd seen him like write lyrics to songs before and whatnot. Yeah, I mean he would, he would write songs. But Debbie Kelly insisted that this notebook had not been full of song lyrics. Instead, it had contained the bylaws of a violent gang, and the gang's leader, Deborah Kelly said, was listed as Kane's story. Does it strike you as he would be the leader of that gang? Would he be the one who would really be the leader? I think it was a title, to be honest. Uh, the main thing is they all stuck together. That's the way I figured it out. They all stuck together and they weren't going to narc on the other one. Of all the witnesses we've spoken to in this case, 
The interview with Debbie Kelly might have been the most difficult interview of them all. The problem I was having is what she told us was so different from her other statements that I didn't know where to take the questions. She changed her story even while we were sitting, while we were sitting there talking. Every time I had a question, she would adapt to it. So yeah. I was like, if I ask her a question, she's going to say that's part of the story now. There is no way in, in, in reality where if, if Dave Stewart said to Kane, you tell me or you're going to jail and you're going to be somebody's sweetheart, there is no way, if everything I know about the kid and her spoken to him, there is no way that he wouldn't have cracked right away. He did crack right away. Debbie Kelly's memory of a defiant Kane story who'd refused to narc on his homies was at odds with the actual case record. On many points, it's clear that Debbie Kelly's memories have very much changed with time. But as Dan pointed out, Debbie Kelly never actually gave a contemporaneous interview about the notebook. The first time she'd spoken to police about it had been nearly a year after she says it was found. I'm just saying that it, it makes it even more possible that she's just like kind of imagining what she glanced over for a second. She seems like a, a witness who'd be easy to lead. As yeah, exactly. You saw, with That's her own questioning, saying. right? You could almost imagine what the conversation. So let's say Dave Stewart is like comes to her and it's like, you know, these boys who are in a gang. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah. Did you ever see anything gang related? Well, there was this notebook with a skull and crossbones. But a skull and crossbones. I mean, Keith Richards has a has a skull, right? I mean. Yeah, but they would have jumped on that. Oh, yeah, that no, right. sounds horrible. What else? Was right. there writing in there? Was there? Since the skull and crossbones notebook was never found, there's no way to know now for sure what was written inside. But Debbie told investigators that there was someone else who had seen the notebook too. Was there anyone else um, who knew about the notebook at that time? Was anyone with you when you found the notebook? Uh, there was a, a girl helping me clean. Her name was Nancy. And I don't know what ever happened to her. But uh, she, was, she was very nervous. Susan and I found Nancy Williams at her apartment in Rome. We spoke to her while her grandkids were running around playing nearby, and she confirmed that she had once helped Debbie Kelly clean the story's trailer. She cleaned houses, and she cleaned their house. Mm -hmm. And I was with her at one time, and she found a notebook. I don't know if that notebook ever made it to trial. I was never called mm -hmm. as a witness. She probably was. Nancy actually did testify at the trial, though, and she'd forgotten that she had. She still remembered the notebook, though. I just went in there dusted and straightened up, and I was in his room, and I remember finding a notebook. What did, but it, look, what did it look like? It was like a plano composition notebook, or a table color, just a spiral notebook. And it was disturbing, and I don't remember specifically what it says now, I couldn't tell you. At the time, Nancy had lived just down the road from the stories. So she knew Kane, but they had never interacted. Oh, so you've never actually met Josh or Kane? Well, see, the reason that, that it stuck out with Kane is because the especially my mother-in-law at the time, would always remark how unusual it was to have a boy named Cain, and it, it's no wonder it turned out evil, you know. But it's crazy, Southern people. Nancy was never interviewed by the police, but she was interviewed by the district attorney's office. She told the DA's investigator about finding a notebook at the story's trailer but said that it hadn't contained a list of gang members or anything like that. At trial, though, Nancy's story changed. Yes, she said, there had been a list of gang members in the notebook, though she didn't remember any names. All she remembered seeing in the notebook were two rules that gang members had been required to follow. The first rule was, if a brother speaks to pigs, meaning the police, then punishment is death. The second rule was, should any other brother be aware that another brother has spoken to the pigs, then it is that brother's duty to kill him. And if that brother fails to do so, then he is to be put to death as well. We asked Nancy what it had been like to find this notebook. Very uneventful. Oh, Deborah, look at this, it's weird, creepy. So yeah, we just glanced through it, we didn't pay. We didn't spend very much time on it. I just showed it to her and we went about business and that was done. Mama! When you say creepy, do you mean like, like drug related or like violence or? They didn't find the notebook, so we don't know. Oh, really? The was there never a notebook? 
No one ever saw the notebook. So except really? for except for you and Deborah. Wow, I didn't know that. We spoke to Nancy's daughter as well. She had been too young to remember the bowling case, but growing up, she'd heard people talk about it. And she was surprised to learn that her mom had testified at the trial. Even mama testifying, mom. I can't believe I did that. I must have been made to. I know. They, uh, evidently, I, evidently, I was in the court. I mean, you'd think that'd be something you'd remember, wouldn't you? Being in court? Yeah, I was. I, testified. I, I guess I did. You don't remember that at all? Not at all. Today, Nancy does not remember the contents of the notebook. But she also doesn't remember thinking that the notebook was a big deal. She told us that it hadn't seemed ominous to her, just strange. I hate that that notebook and stuff probably half convicted them, and I don't even have it. The notebook was never even entered into evidence. They never That's found crazy. It. If ever you wanted to find a case in a town that was dirty and done wrong, Floyd County here. If y'all wanted to, I'm telling you, if y'all wouldn't take much looking in this county at other cases that sent people away for life, and you might just find yourself something bigger than you know. Well, Dallas Battle has uh, apparently quite a history in this town. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I never had to deal with him, you know. But I do know. I've dealt with enough policemen, you know, that were dirty and partied and had fun and did what they wanted to do. They good old boys. They damn sure did. The skull and crossbones notebook was never found, which is why it shouldn't have mattered in this case at all. When Kane and Lee appealed their conviction, they argued in part that the trial court should not have allowed the notebook to be used as evidence. And the Supreme Court of Georgia agreed with them. The testimony of the women was hearsay, and it was admitted without a determination that it fell within an exception to the rule prohibiting the use of hearsay. The erroneous admission of the women's testimony concerning the contents of the composition book is, however, made harmless by the testimony of the party hostess concerning gang membership and rules. The court concluded that neither Debbie Kelly nor Nancy Williams should have been allowed to testify, and that letting the jury hear about the alleged gang rulebook had been a mistake. But the court also concluded that this mistake hadn't caused any harm to Lee's and Kane's defense. Because Angela Bruce had testified that Kane and Lee had confessed to being in a gang, which means the evidence about the gang rulebook didn't actually matter. The court found that even if the jury had never heard about the rulebook, they still would have believed Angela Bruce, so they would have convicted Leon Kane anyway. Brian's uncle Michael believes, though, that neither Kane nor Lee would have been convicted if it hadn't been for the third witness that was called to testify in Kane's defense. That witness was Kane Joshua Story himself. What do you think was the most compelling evidence against them? Josh's testimony. Josh's testimony. Yeah. I think that's the only way that the trial ended the way it did. You think if he hadn't taken the stand? I think they would have got off the hook. As you're watching the trial, are you are you worried it's not going to end in a conviction? Yes. Uh, yep. I was thinking, you know, that there's probably about a 70% chance that we would not get a conviction until he testified. After Kane testified, Michael had felt pretty certain that the jury would find him guilty. But he hadn't expected that they would find Lee guilty as well. But you remember having the thought that Josh could be convicted, but Lee might not be. Yes. I was surprised at the verdict that he was convicted, period. Glenn Clark also remembers that Kane's testimony had been a bit of a mess. That was a say. Hey, that boy got up there. They should never put that boy on the stand. He cried. I mean, Kane, Josh breaks down crying up on the stand. You know, they should, they should never put him on the stand. If you could have been there and saw it, you'd know what I was talking about. In the transcript, 
the court reporter noted 12 different times that Kane was crying as he spoke in court. And twice, there's simply a notation of, the witness sobs loudly. No one who saw Kane's testimony has suggested to us that he was somehow faking this. Everyone believed he was genuinely distraught. But many of them interpreted Kane's tears as a sign of remorse. They thought he was crying because he felt bad about killing Brian. It wasn't just Kane's demeanor, though, that made his testimony a disaster for Lee Clark. Because Kane testified to something that the prosecution could never have proven on its own. That, on the evening that Brian had been shot, Lee and Kane were hanging out together. Kane had been with me earlier that day, and I think that's where it all stemmed from right there. Me dropping him off that store, and I did drop him off the store. I dropped him off down to Silver Creek Mini Market on Rockmore Highway, turned around and went back to my house in Lindale. This is probably why Lee became a suspect in this case in the first place, and why investigators decided it was Lee and not any of the other alleged Freebirds who had been Kane's co-conspirator, because they knew Lee and Kane had been hanging out that evening before Brian was shot. Though for some reason, the investigators ignored the fact that there had been a third boy with Lee and Kane as well, Lee's little brother, Jamie. We took and dropped Kane off, and that was the last we seen of him. My brother was driving, and then we went to over there where my brother was living, and um, we partied that night, drinking, stuff like that. Lee and Jamie have never denied that they were driving around with Kane that night. But the police never interviewed them. They only ever talked to Kane. He was their only source for this information. But under the Sixth Amendment, nothing Kane said about Lee could be used as evidence against him unless and until Kane agreed to testify, which he did. So the jury did get to hear that Kane and Lee were together that night. And they also heard why Kane and Lee had been hanging out that night. We stole that safe on October the 3rd. Mm-hmm. I picked Kane up on October the 18th. When I picked him up on October the 18th, everybody had already been arrested and charged with this safe there. I was trying to find out which one of them said something, whether it was Kane or his little buddy Joseph. I know one of them had done said something to the police. All four of the boys involved in the safe theft had been arrested and charged with the theft. But only Kane and Joseph were arrested the very same day that the safe had been stolen. And it was that evening that someone had told the police where the boys had left the busted-up safe, off a dirt road in Polk County. So Lee knew someone involved in the safe theft had talked to the police, and there were only two possibilities about who it could be. I know it was either Kane or Joseph. It had to be one of them two. That's the only plausible explanation. And I was right. It turned out it was Kane that said it. When Kane testified at trial, he'd confirmed that that night, Lee had asked him straight up if he'd been the one to talk to the police. Kane said Lee hadn't seemed angry or upset. He just wanted to know who'd done it. Kane told him he didn't know, so they smoked another joint and drove around some more. Kane, of course, had known who'd done it. It was him. But Lee wouldn't find that out until much later on when the tape recording of Kane's statement to David Stewart was played in court. I turned around and looked at him when they played that tape. I said, really? I said, really, man? He's just holding his head down. I, I mean, I, it is what it is. Kane's testimony about hanging out with Lee and Jamie that night had not looked good for Lee. And from what Brian's uncle had seen at the trial, it was because of Kane's testimony that the jury came back with guilty verdicts for both defendants. When them people come in there and they found me guilty of this stuff, Susan, I felt something at that point right that I ain't never felt in my life, and I'll probably never feel again the rest of my life, unless maybe on the day I die, I might feel it then. I don't know. Lee had not been expecting the verdict. He thought the trial had gone well for him, and he felt confident that after sitting in the county jail for nearly a year, he was finally going to walk free. I'm sitting there thinking, I'm going to go home because this is a bunch of lies right here. When they did that right there, my God, I couldn't even believe it. My mind's just running a thousand different directions. I'm about to choke to death. I feel like I'm about to fall over dead because I don't feel like I can breathe. God, I just, you can't explain that feeling to anybody. You know, no matter how much detail you go into about it, you cannot get somebody to feel that feeling. Because that's something that you had to experience for yourself to build a feeling. I mean, it's a feeling you just lost all hope. Like I said, your life flashed before your eyes. And that's a, 
that's a hell of a feeling to be sitting there feeling at the age of 18 years old. And uh, they didn't make it no worse when they put us on that bus and I pulled up down at Jackson State Prison. I'm sitting there looking over at this prison, scared to death because I don't know what's waiting on me inside. I turned around, I looked at Kane, I told Kane, I said, we ain't gonna make it. And Kane, he's over bawling his eyeballs out. I told him, I said, man, you might as well stop all that right there. I said, that ain't gonna look good. You keep doing that. Some of these guys say that right there, man. Did he quit? He eventually got himself under control. Once we got going through there, we get in there and they go to shaving our heads and me and him sitting over looking like two skint rats. <laughs> when Lee arrived at the prison that day, he'd been certain he wasn't going to make it, that he didn't have what it takes to survive behind prison walls. But he did survive. And he says that more than anything else, it's the support he's gotten from his father that helped him make it through. I mean, I know all kids think the world of their dad, but my dad has got to be one of the best men I've ever met in my life. He's just a naturally good guy, and I've told him before, hundred times over. I said, you know, did it? I said, if I could just ever in my lifetime live up to be half the man you are, I'll be doing fine. Glenn Clark has never given up on his son, but he doesn't know how he can help Lee challenge his conviction. He's tried over the years, but every time he's turned somewhere for help, he's been turned down, and he's out of ideas of what to do. Has that pain ever gone away? Do you still carry it with you? There ain't a day that goes by that, that I don't think about Lee and I'm, here it is, I'm getting older, and I'm hoping and praying that he'll be able to get out while I'm still here so I can help him get on his feet. Let me tell you something. Ever since Lee's been locked up, I've been trying to run up on somebody that can help me. One decade passed, and then another, and still Lee is no closer to going home. Glenn says at times, thinking about his son behind bars for a crime he doesn't believe Lee committed was too much for him to bear. I had a bad, uh, I won't say if it's called a breakdown, I got real bad depression stage. And I, I, don't, I don't know how to tell you this happened, but I, uh, I stuck a gun to my head more than once. Never pulled a hammer back. But look, I'm looking for help. I'm looking for a way out. I'm looking for help. You, you, you just, you can't realize how bad it is. Somebody that ain't never been there ain't got a clue. So I told Sherry, I said, you're gonna need to take me to the hospital or somewhere. I said, don't, I'm gonna hurt myself. You don't want to tell nobody that. But they took me to uh, kind of like a mental hospital and, and, and not just mental, but they got psychiatrists that come in. The, the night they took me over there, they put me in a room and I had a room by myself. And I went in that room I've shared this with the church, too. But, uh... When you get that low... He's calling now. When you get that low... And I asked the Lord... I said, God... I don't know whether you're there or not. I said, but if you are, I need you to come into my life. Take it over. And I put all my faith in him. And, uh... Thank you for using Securus. You may start the conversation now. And it's been... Hey, Lee, hold on just a minute, son. All right. And since I've done that, you just hold on for a minute. He, yeah, he changed my life. He made a man out of me. 
it it took a while. It's a it's a working process. I told him, I said, if you'll do for me, come into my life, I'll do for you for the rest of my life. And and I do. Lee, you you there? Hey. Yeah, what's going on, bud? I am, uh, got Jacinda here and, uh, talking to him, and I'm being a movie star, son. <laughs> Next week on Proof. He's the first person I've spoken to who actually has, like, affirmatively said, Yes, I've, I have knowledge of the Freebirds. It was a thing. No one else has like had any actual knowledge of the Freebirds. Jesus Christ! So the story, according to Archer, is that he said, "Don't go to Brian's house. Promise me you won't go to Brian's house." And then that's the night Brian was shot. At trial, they say that you wrote this note and that you wrote the Narcs thing. They never asked me anything about anything. You've been listening to Proof, a podcast by Red Marble Media. We'll be back next Monday for episode 11. Send us your questions at proofcrimepod at gmail.com. We'll respond during our bonus episodes, Proof Sidebar, on Thursdays. Kevin Fitzpatrick is our executive producer. Our logo was designed by Drew Hosuski. And our theme music is by Ramiro Marquez. Audio production for this episode is by George Panos and Michael Yulatowski. Production assistance provided by Jude Slava. Our social media manager is Skylar Park. Thank you to our sponsors for making it possible for us to come back week after week. Follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening.